Welcome to the Jason Tiff Podcast. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your day to come hang out and talk some hoops with me. Uh, I'm finally back in town, hopefully for the long run this time. Um, I went up to Utah in Park City, um, did some skiing. Uh, it was funny. I, I managed to survive on the mountain pretty well. Uh, but then one of the nights, my wife and I went ice skating on like a little ice rink that was right there next to the slopes. And I totally ate shit in the most spectacular way possible where I slammed my back into the ground and gave myself a pretty mean case of whiplash and uh, 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 a reminder that no matter how uh, athletic you think you are, no matter how coordinated you think you are, you can very quickly be humbled anytime you're on on uh, some ice skates. So uh, that was interesting. I'm back in town for a while now. I'm looking forward to getting into a good rhythm with this and getting this going again to where we have multiple episodes a week. But I thank you guys as usual for tuning in and supporting. Uh, I'm going to talk all about Lakers Sixers today. I did a ton of film deep dive today, particularly into the specific strategies that the two teams were employing against each other. And then I really dove into some numbers having to do with the Laker rotation that I think is really interesting, particularly as it pertains to the Caruso minutes and the Dennis Schroeder in the starting lineup stuff. And I really found some interesting numbers. So hopefully you guys will stick around for that. And then I also plan on taking some questions at the end. I've got one from the tweet I sent out earlier. And then while you guys are listening along, drop any questions you have in the comments here and I'll get to them at the end. Uh, but I want to, so I have a couple things I want to uh, touch that I thought were interesting in this particular game. Because usually in a regular season game, you can't take too much from the outcome necessarily because there's always some weird thing going on. Like the Lakers are in the middle of a super long road trip while the, the, the Sixers have been at home. The Lakers are, uh, uh, um, in a, you could tell from the start last night, the Sixers just felt like they had a little bit more that they wanted to prove, so they're playing a little bit harder. But what you can pay attention to is spe- uh, specific strategic things that will inevitably end up happening when you get into a playoff series. So I want to talk about how the Lakers defended Joel Embiid. I thought that was really interesting. We're going to talk about the problem with Dennis Schroeder in the starting lineup. We're going to talk about Caruso's minutes. And then I'm going to talk about some of the stuff that's going on with Anthony Davis and what I think might be causing those problems. Um, so starting with Embiid, from the start, at the beginning of the game, Gasol was on him. And I thought this was interesting because if you guys have listened to my podcast at all over the last couple uh, of months, I talked about how big I thought the Marc Gasol signing was as insurance for specific matchups against Joel Embiid and against Nikola Jokic and just bigger, craftier centers that used to just absolutely destroy Dwight Howard and uh, and JaVale McGee last year, just because they were a little bit in over their skis in terms of their basketball IQ and, and their mobility and things along those lines. And Marcus Gasol has a little bit of a history of defending Joel Embiid really well. So I was optimistic that there might be something there. And to be clear, some people got in my case last night. I don't think he did a bad job by any means, but he wasn't the same force against Joel Embiid that he had shown in the past. He wasn't as effective as, against him as he used to be. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that Joel Embiid's just better now. It's not as, so much about Marcus Gasol's decline as it is about Joel Embiid just being in a, a rare groove right now. He's extremely gifted at drawing fouls. He's a lot quicker and more decisive when he makes his moves. And he's got this whole arsenal of mid-range uh, jump shots and little floaters and hook shots and stuff that he can make now that he didn't used to be able to make. Um, so that was the first thing that I thought was interesting. But as the game progressed, they tried uh, Montrez on him for stretches. Montrez got absolutely destroyed for the most part. 
And then they tried, or they had to send doubles, hard doubles every time he'd end up in that matchup. But then at the end of the game, it was a lot of Anthony Davis. And what was interesting there, if you go into my Twitter feed and you scroll down, you'll see a uh, video breakdown that I did where I really talked about the different types of, of, of matchups between Embiid and, and Davis at the end of the game and the different types of defensive technique that Anthony Davis used. There were plays where Joel took him with his back to the basket. There were plays where Joel faced him up. When he faced him up, there were times when Anthony Davis tried heavy ball pressure, getting up in his grill. And then there were times where Anthony Davis gave him a little bit more space and just played with a hand up to try to force him into a jump shot. And it was really clear what was working and what wasn't. There was a big play at the end of the fourth quarter where Joel Embiid faced up Anthony Davis. AD immediately like got right up into him with his chest on his shoulder and was uh, kind of had his arms up like this and was just getting up into his space. And Joel Embiid is so much more physically powerful than Anthony Davis, so much stronger and bigger that he was able to do just a really basic rip-through move to get past Anthony Davis and finish a reverse layup with the foul. Uh, whereas it, uh, on later possessions, when Anthony Davis gave space and used his length to his advantage, he was able to beat Joel Embiid to the spot and force him to take tougher jump shots. And there at the end of the game, when the Lakers made their comeback in the last few minutes, there was a lot of Anthony Davis giving Joel Embiid space, forcing him to, to make some sort of dribble move or to settle for a jump shot. And they had a lot of success, forced Embiid to, into a lot of misses, a couple of turnovers. It gave the Lakers better chances for uh, a lot of uh, dig-ins and help to, to try to force turnovers. And a lot of that had to do with better rotations on the back end. So... Early in the fourth quarter, there was a play where uh, Joel was posting up and Matisse Thibel was one pass away and uh, they doubled off of Matisse Thibel's man with Anthony Davis and uh, uh, Matisse Thibel was wide open. But instead of letting him be the guy to take the shot, Alex Caruso rotated over from Furkan Korkmaz, who's a much, much better shooter, and it led to a really simple uh, rotation that led to a, a Ben Simmons layup. Whereas if they were when they were a little bit smarter late in the game, uh, they they were uh, when they would double and leave Matisse Thibel open, or when Matisse checked out of the game, there was a lot of a lot better communication between the Laker guards. You'd see KCP usually be two passes away, and then either Dennis Schroeder or uh, Alex Caruso be one pass away, and he would work on digging on Embiid, and then KCP would kind of position himself in a classic kind of shell drill position where he's splitting the difference between the two guys so that he's effectively taking away that first pass. But if for whatever reason, Joel Embiid attempts to throw over the top and and anticipate KCP jumping the first pass, he could still rotate to the second pass. That's kind of like cheating that first rotation. It's something you can only do against rudimentary passers, but it gives you a better opportunity to, to recover uh, in those uh, circumstances. And one of the big things to watch for a potential NBA final series between these two teams is Embiid still is a rudimentary passer. There were a lot of sequences at the end of that game where the Lakers were sending heavy help towards Embiid and he just wasn't seeing the floor very well. If you look on my little, uh, if you look on my little uh, a thread that I did, you'll see several plays where the Lakers basically abandoned Seth Curry and either left him wide open in the corner or one pass away on the wing and there, and there was a really easy opportunity for Embiid to hit one of the best three point shooters in the league, but he just wasn't, he just wasn't seeing that play. So it's something to keep in mind. If in one regular season game, without a whole lot of, of reps to really build a strategy, the Lakers really found a method 
to slow down Joel Embiid in the half court. And it involved a lot of Anthony Davis on Joel giving space, forcing him to make dribble moves and beating him to the spot and forcing him to take jumpers. And the Laker guards just being in better positions to rotate and banking on the fact that Embiid's just not a good enough passer to be kind of one step ahead of that rotation to make the right play to hit the open shooter. So that very, very uh, uh, good news if you're a Laker fan for that potential matchup. Because usually that sort of thing with really, really great players can take a whole series to figure out. And they kind of figured it out in three and a half quarters. So it was a really interesting matchup. A lot of interesting stuff to take away. But I still like the Lakers defense as being very capable of not neutralizing Joel Embiid, but at least making him take a lot of jump shots and forcing him to make tougher reads on the floor. So it's a lot of good stuff to take away there. So let's move on to Schroeder. This is a drum that I've been beating all year long. This idea that, you know, uh, Dennis Schroeder, for ego purposes or whatever the reason is, decided that he believes he deserves to start. And what I always was saying was just that Embiid starting or uh, Schroeder starting may be good for his ego, but it's bad for his game. And a lot of that has to do with a simple basketball proposition. If you're going to be playing alongside LeBron and Anthony Davis, chances are at the beginning of these games, they're going to be very aggressive. And if they are, all of a sudden you, Dennis Schroeder, this guy who's supposed to be a lead ball handler, is going to pretty much become a spot-up shooter. And you saw a lot of that in last night's game. Early in the game, a whole lot of LeBron and Anthony Davis, not a lot of Dennis Schroeder action. And so you're basically wasting Dennis Schroeder's minutes in a role that Wesley Matthews could just as easily fulfill, if not better, because Wesley Matthews is a little bit better defensively, that it's a waste of those minutes. And so, but the biggest problem is, is it's hurting the opportunities later in the game when the starters aren't. Because the, all three of them together, when, I, I dug into the lineup data today. When LeBron, Anthony Davis, and Dennis Schroeder are on the floor together, the Lakers are amazing. It's not a problem with that specific lineup. It's a problem with other lineups. So when all three of them are on the floor, they're plus 15.4 in 331 minutes. That's great news. That means you can go to that lineup in closing time. That means you can go to that lineup at the end of halves or whatever it is that you want to do to to find minutes for the three of them together. But if you don't properly stagger them at the beginning of the game, you're going to end up with these other lineups that end up struggling. So, for instance, the Lakers have had to run LeBron by himself for 188 minutes this year. That's a lot. When you've got three star-ish level players, if you're counting Dennis Schroeder as a fringe star, when you've got three really, really gifted offensive players – and you're not staggering them properly, you're going to end up with one of those guys on the floor a lot. And that really shouldn't happen. So LeBron in 188 minutes, because he's so good, is still a net positive, but he's only a plus 1.7. Whereas when LeBron is with AD, he's plus 15.6 in 48 minutes. When he's with just Dennis, so LeBron and Dennis together, he's plus 19.1 in 60 minutes. So when you have LeBron and one of the other two on the floor together – You're killing teams, but you're leaving him out there by himself for 188 minutes as compared to 108 minutes with him with one of the other two stars. And in those minutes, you're barely winning because you're leaving LeBron with those weird lineups with like Montrezl Harrell and and, and Markeith Morris and things along those lines. So one of the problems with with starting Dennis Schroeder is inevitably LeBron checks out of the game with like five minutes to go in the first quarter 
and Anthony Davis and, and, and uh, Dennis Schroeder are running the team. But then LeBron comes back in at the end of the first quarter and Dennis pops out and then Anthony Davis checks out because he's got to get some rest. And so now you're starting the second quarter and you're going like a six-minute stretch with neither Anthony Davis nor Dennis Schroeder on the floor. And that's happening every single night. And in those minutes, the Lakers are barely scraping by with a positive, uh, with a positive on the scoreboard. So, for instance, last night, Dennis Schroeder plays from the, the beginning of the game to about three minutes left in the first quarter. Then he sits for 11 minutes. He doesn't come back in until four minutes left in the second quarter. And at that point, he's only with uh, LeBron is checking back in. LeBron checks back in with two and a half minutes left in the in the second quarter. And so you're 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 wasting the vast majority of the Dennis Schroeder minutes with LeBron already on the floor. When the whole point of having Dennis Schroeder to begin with was to have him as this like backup ball handler that could help with your bench lineups. You know what I mean? So it's one of those things where I it's it's. I understand you're trying to appease a player that you're trying to re-sign and bring back, you know, as a future for this team. So you're trying to take care of his ego. You're trying to make him feel better about himself and all that good stuff. But genuinely, you're you're damaging other areas of the of the team, other lineups in a, in a bunch of different ways too. Because guess what, Dennis Schroeder's been struggling. You want to know why? Because every single game he comes out and he's starting the game playing against or playing with two of the four best players in the world, and he's not getting the same amount of, of, of aggression that he normally would get in a different lineup. And then to, to top that off, it's, it's starting to affect Anthony Davis. We're going to talk a lot about this later, but in my opinion, one of the big reasons why Anthony Davis has had struggles this year stems from the fact that there's just a little bit uh, an over-reliance on trying to keep other guys involved because there's too much ball handling on the floor with that initial lineup. Whereas last year, one of the big reasons why I think Anthony Davis was so good was from the beginning, it was, hey, it's LeBron and AD. They're going to do everything. So there, there wasn't an issue with rhythm. There wasn't an issue with like building your confidence over the course of the game. And I do think that's one of the reasons, and we're going to talk about this more later, like I said, but I do think that's one of the reasons why he has struggled. So in my opinion, it makes way more sense. You start with LeBron and AD, then it goes to AD and Schroeder at the end of the first when LeBron checks out. And then AD checks out and it's Schroeder and LeBron to start the second quarter, you know, and then LeBron checks out, AD comes back in and it's, you know, Schroeder and, and, and AD. And then you can end the, 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 uh, the half either with AD and LeBron, or you can find a little bit of time to take Schroeder out there so he can finish the half as well. But there's an easy way to stagger this lineup so that you always have two of those guys out there. Because like the numbers that I shared with you earlier, when they have them, at least two of them, they're doing pretty well. It's, it's the LeBron by himself minutes where they're barely scraping by because you're not staggering the lineups properly and it's starting, it's starting to hurt the team. Um, all right, let's move on to Caruso. Remember to drop questions in the comments if you guys have any questions for the end. All right, so um, I dug into some of the lineup data with Caruso. Um, it's getting absolutely out of control and completely nonsensical and downright at sometimes seemingly self-sabotaging when it, when it comes to this, this stuff with the Caruso minutes, because of all of the Laker rotation players, he's got the second highest net rating behind just KCP. Who's uh, around plus 19 and some change. Caruso is plus 16.7 in only 17.7 minutes per game. Caruso's playing only 37% of available Laker minutes in a per-game 
in, in, within the scope of, of, of each game. So you're playing two-thirds of the game without your one of your very best uh, role players. And what's crazy about this is, you know, a lot of times you'll, you'll uh, read too much into this kind of stuff because of, you know, statistical noise that can happen in a small sample size. So, for instance, last year, the exact same thing was happening. Caruso was playing limited minutes. Every single time he was on the floor, the Lakers were dominant. And you could, but there, there was, there was, it was early on, you know, there wasn't a ton of, uh, of, of evidence and the Lakers were so good that you could look in the mirror and you could be like, eh, like, is it really Caruso? Or is it just the fact that he's out there with LeBron James, who's a, you know, second in the MVP voting or whatever it is. But now we're stretching to a whole year and a playoff run and an additional, you know, whatever it is, 19 games or whatever the Lakers have played this year. We have a ton of data now. And this ton of data tells us that when Alex Caruso is on the floor, the Lakers are flat-out dominant on both ends of the floor. They're right around a 116 offensive rating, and their defensive rating is down below 100. They are dominant on both ends of the floor with Alex Caruso. He has now added enough to his game offensively that he's a legitimate positive on that end as well. There is absolutely no reason at this point for him not to be in the game more than he is. At one point, you know, you could say early on, you're like, oh, we're testing out lineups. You know, we're trying to see, you know, where things fit together, blah, 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 blah. We have a year, a full playoff run in 19 games of this regular season worth of evidence that this guy needs to be playing more. And for whatever reason, he's not. And I really don't understand it. Like, you know, what's funny is, uh, he absolutely deserves to be an all defensive uh, he, to be on one of the all de- uh, all defense teams. He's not going to get it. You know why? Because he's not playing enough, which is a hundred percent on on Frank. It do- it doesn't make any sense to me, and and I feel bad because you know if, if I was in Alex Caruso's position, you can see with the way he plays, he's such a competitor. He plays so hard, and it's got to be frustrating for him to to sit on the bench and watch these games, knowing he's impacting the game at the level he is. And to sit there and know he has to watch for two thirds of the game, and then maybe get his chance at the end. It's it's one of the more nonsensical things that I can remember in my time rooting for any team in in professional sports. Uh, but I feel bad for Alex because it's like it, it it there is no weakness in his game as it pertains to the role that he's asked to fill. No one's saying he's Dennis Schroeder as an offensive player, but when you're looking at what he's asked to do, which is to defend at an extremely high level, both in rotation and on the ball. And he, on the other end, he's asked to open, uh, knock down open shots, attack closeouts, and to every so once in a while, you know, run a pick and roll or, or something with the ball in his hands. He's not asked to do much. And with the things that he's asked to do, he's knocking those things out of the park every single time. And there's absolutely no reason for him not to be in the game. Like when you're watching, when you're watching uh, uh, Talon Horton Tucker, you're like, man, this guy brings a ton to the table defensively. Every once in a while, he's making a really, really impressive offensive play where he's driving to the basket and dunking on somebody or, or he's doing some crazy scoop shot over a shot blocker. And then on the defensive end, he's stealing the ball from somebody here or there. He's making some crazy play. But when you dig into the numbers, uh, Talon Horton Tucker, the, the team performs really well defensively with him on the floor. They're right around like a 98 defensive rating. But in his, in his minutes offensively, the team is struggling. They're down around 105 points per, offen- uh, per 100 possessions offensively. So there's a reason why he's not playing very much. Offensively, he's a little bit of a loose cannon. And that's to be expected at his age. 
And, and you can see it in the game tape when you're watching the game last night, you know, one minute he's driving to the basket and dunking. The next minute he's getting stripped in traffic because he's not seeing the floor well enough to kind of see where the help defense is coming from and to understand that there's so much length on the floor with that Philly defense that he's not, he, he can't just squeeze through all these holes the way that he's used to. So with Townhorn Tucker, it makes sense to not play him as much. You know, Wesley Matthews, he's older. He's coming off an Achilles tear. It makes sense to keep his minutes down. You know, he's, he's, he's been a little bit hit or miss this year in a lot of ways. So it makes sense for him to be unlimited minutes. You know, uh, but as far there are three guys in that guard rotation that should never be out of the game. You know, as far as their normal rotation goes, they should always be in the game, you know, uh, to, to, to as much as their bodies can handle. And that's KCP, Alex Crusoe, and Dennis Schroeder. Those three guys are absolute flat-out ballers. They can play. They need to be in the game. And it doesn't make any sense to continually have Alex sitting on the sideline watching you know, especially in really competitive games like last night with all the things that he brings to the table. So we're going to talk about Anthony Davis now. All right. So Anthony Davis has been flat out disappointing this season. I don't need to tell you that. All of you feel that way. I tweeted last night, you know, the synopsis of Anthony Davis' season is that he's nowhere near as good as he was defensively last year. And on the offensive end, he's drifting further away from the basket and making a heck of a lot less of those shots than he did last year. You know, Raj, you guys know him as unwritten rules. Every time he'd come on, we talk a lot about how Anthony Davis's mid-range jump shot is, is going in at like a KD-esque level or Michael Jordan-esque level, you know, right around the mid-50s that 55% type of range, that's the way he was shooting in the bubble. And not only that, he was shooting extremely well in the games leading into the bubble, you know, in March and in February. I, I, I remember he was like 40-something percent from three over his last 12 games of the, of, the, of the regular season before the shutdown. There was an absolute positive trend in Anthony Davis as a jump shooter that was showing not just in the bubble, but before the bubble. And it gave you, you know, optimi- it gave you an optimistic outlook on, on what you could expect from Anthony Davis, you know, moving forward. This season, he's just not making them. And not only that, he's leaning too heavily on it. You know, I always talk about, you know, with a jump shot, it, you know, the, the thing with jump shooting as a superstar, or as a really good basketball player, is, is, is it's complicated because there's a fine line between, you know, settling and using it as as a mix-up and for rest. So, for instance, like everyone always wants to say, oh, LeBron should drive to the basket and dunk it every time. Well, that's not realistic. It's not realistic for fatigue. It's not realistic for, you know, the way that the defense is going to react. You know, like the if you drive to the basket and get an easy layup, chances are the next time you attempt to drive, there's going to be a lot more traffic in the paint as the defense kind of, you know, adapts and adjusts to what you're trying to do. You have to be able to make jump shots in order to loosen up the defense and soften up the defense so that you can get to the basket. Same goes for passing the ball. All of those things are part of that experience. And so, you know, uh, it's very important for Anthony Davis to be able to shoot, but there's always a line. And the line for Anthony Davis has been crossed, in my opinion. He's leaning too heavily on the jump shot to the point where I actually think it's starting to detrimentally impact him overall as an offensive player. So for instance, this season in total, Anthony Davis has attempted 82 shots inside of five feet. So think of that as like finishing anything around the basket 
off of uh, drop-offs and in transition, things along those lines. But that's also a really physical post move. You know, obviously you can get to a seven or eight foot hook shot anytime you want when you're as tall as he is. But with how physically gifted he is, with how big and strong he is, with how fast he is, with how tall he is, he absolutely should be able to, in isolation, get to the rim a certain amount of time, you would think, right? So 82 shot attempts inside of five feet. He's making those at 76%. He's attempted 148 shots outside of 10 feet. So for every one shot that he's getting at the rim, he's taking almost two shots outside of 10 feet. And he's only making those at a 36% clip, a very, very tiny fraction of what he was doing last year in the bubble in the games leading into the bubble. So if, if, with this Anthony Davis stuff, you know, like it, it was almost like one of those things where uh, uh, he probably took some time off after the, the, the championship, which he should have, took some distance from the game to recover mentally, to recover physically. That's great. But then he came back and whatever rhythm he had built up over that stretch you know, from February through the bubble, that rhythm is gone. And so now I think he's trying to get that rhythm back, but he's doing it by leaning more heavily into those long distance jump shots. And as you, the problem with jump shooting is there's nothing more discouraging than missing a jump shot. Because when you miss a jump shot, it always leads to a long rebound and transition. It always feels like you're settling. So it kind of has a negative impact on the rest of the team. You know, there's there, there's a big downside to missing a jump shot. So it can kind of spiral out of control into a confidence issue. Next thing you know, you can't make anything. Anthony Davis is missing wide open shots now, in addition to the tougher ones that he's taking over the course of the game. Like the last couple of games, the, the Golden State game and last night, he missed a couple of wide open shots at the end of the game. Against Golden State, there was one at the top of the key. And then against Philly, there was a three that he took. Uh, and both of them, not even really close. Uh, both of them, I think, were wide right. That's part of that issue is he doesn't have confidence in his jump shot and he's trying to get confidence back in his jump shot by shooting a million of them. And as a result, he's not getting to the basket at all, you know, compared to, to what you would expect. You want that balance to be, to be more 50-50 in my opinion. So uh, I'll have to look up the numbers and I'll tweet them out later, but I'd be willing to bet that if I pulled up LeBron's uh, stats at the basket, versus 10 feet or more away from the basket, my, be- my bet would be that he would have a better balance and that you'd see more attempts at the rim to balance out the shots that he's getting from the basket. Anthony Davis is taking twice as many shots away from the rim, over 10 feet away, as he is inside of five feet. And I really do think that that is part of his problem offensively and part of the reason why he's having such a hard time getting into a rhythm. You know, when you look at LeBron's shooting percentages over the course of his career, and you look and it's like, you know, his bad games were never the Kobe bad games. You know, he never had the six for 24. That just doesn't happen with LeBron. It's not part of, uh, it's not part of his shot profile. You know, his bad games are like eight of 22, you know, 10 of 22. That's what the, the inefficient LeBron game looks like. And the reason why it's like that is he has such a great shot profile. He has such a good balance between attempts at the rim and attempts further away from the basket. So LeBron can have a game where he goes 0 for 5 from 3 and 0 for 2 from mid-range, you know, but he's 10 for 14 inside the paint. And so, you know, he finishes up, you know, 10 for 23 and it ends up being a much more efficient game in his bad game. And then he has his good game where he's making his jump shots and that's when he ends up with his 16 for 24s and things along those lines. LeBron's shot profile is constructed in a way that even on his bad games, he's getting to the rim enough 
that he's maintaining his impact, he's maintaining his efficiency, he's maintaining his numbers. As we talked about earlier, Anthony Davis is attempting 148 shots outside of 10 feet and only 82 shots inside of 5 feet. So his shot profile is a little bit too stretched further away from the basket. It's negatively impacting his efficiency. It's negatively impacting his rhythm. And it's really starting to hurt him overall offensively. It's just something to keep an eye on. Defensively, it's just weird. I, I, don't, I don't really know. It's hard to quantify because the team is defending extremely well. They are uh, number one in the league still by a decent margin. They still are having these stretches where they're just absolutely stifling. There were a couple of plays last night where he did a really nice job. But there's still all these random plays where he's getting beat, whether it's like Kent Bazemore on a switch toasting Anthony Davis to the basket or Tobias Harris got Anthony Davis a couple times last night with like jump shots, shots that he used to smother with other players. And then there was uh, there was that play with Danny Green in transition. Uh, It's in my Twitter feed. If you look down the thread where uh, Danny Green's running the left side of the floor and uh, uh, shooting like a left handed layup from from Danny Green, where where Anthony Davis would absolutely swallow that nine times out of 10. And he's just not get he's just not getting that anymore. And, you know, I honestly think that's just like a, a little bit of effort focus and, uh, and confidence thing that will come back to him as he, as he, as the offensive end kind of comes around for him. So there's a lot of people talking about on Twitter. Are you worried about Anthony Davis? Not at all. I am not at all worried about Anthony Davis and how good he's going to be as the season progresses and how good he's going to be in the playoffs. He's just not playing well. It's kind of like the weird thing where, you know, I can flatly say that he's not playing well, but I can also flatly say that I'm sure he's going to be fine because it's not like he's looking slow. It's not like he's looking, you know, like he lost some sort of, uh, of talent. He's still the same guy. He's just not playing well. Some of that's fit. Some of that's shot selection. A lot of it is just confidence. It's going to come back over time. He's going to have a couple breakout games and things are going to come together, especially as you get later in the season. So I'm not worried about it. All right. That's all I had as far as uh, my notes. So let's look at these questions. There's one in particular about crunch time that I saw on Twitter, but we'll uh, get to that in a second. Um, Okay. Someone asked, are the Sixers your pick out of the East? So after watching last night, I would say that they're clearly, and I've watched the Sixers several times this year, but it's one of the games that I've watched them most closely, especially since I rewatched the game, uh, watching the tape. The uh, uh, I said from the beginning of the year that I gave them a really good chance. I was picking Brooklyn because I thought that their defense was going to be good enough with Jared Allen and, and Kevin Durant, just bringing a ton of length on the defensive end of the floor. I thought they were going to be good enough. But after the Jared Allen uh, trade uh, it, to bring in James Harden, I actually would lean a little bit towards the Sixers. That Sixers team is extremely physical and extremely long and athletic on the defensive end of the floor. They're going to make things really tough on that Brooklyn Nets team. And one of the big reasons why they were able to, the, the, the Lakers were able to slow down Joel Embiid, who literally might be the second or third best player in the league right now, was because of Anthony Davis and his ridiculous defensive ability and the the keyed in rotations around Anthony Davis that allowed the Lakers to shut down the, the, the Philly actions later in the game and really make things hard on Joel Embiid and allowed them to come back. That's not something Brooklyn is capable of. They literally do not have somebody who can check Joel Embiid. If you thought Marcus all was bad, wait till you see Deandre Jordan. He's really going to struggle in that matchup outside of Deandre Jordan. Every other player on the team is too thin 
and wiry. They're not going to be able to stay in front of him physically. And then they're not connected enough defensively as a unit in terms of their rotations to really successfully double and, 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 and double and rotate to try to get the ball out of Joel Embiid's hands and make other things happen. Not to mention Ben Simmons is an absolute freight train in transition. And he, one of the big reasons the Lakers were able to slow him down was, you know, LeBron and Anthony Davis sitting in drop coverages, you know, playing way off of him and forcing him to drive into their chest. Ben had a great game, but a lot of his success came early and a lot of his success came as a passer as they packed in the paint. They did a good job of slowing him down at the end of the game. And there were a couple of interesting sequences. If you look into my thread that I put earlier, where you can see how the Lakers kind of defended Ben Simmons. But the point being, you know, Philly bring them on both ends. They have a truly elite offensive player in, in Joel Embiid that can go toe-to-toe with all the best stars in the league. They have a co-star in Ben Simmons that can bring enough offensively as a co-star, you know, pushing the ball in transition, creating plays as a passer, running pick and roll, things along those lines. They found a way to, to kind of balance that in a way that they are a really good offensive team and they have tons of shooting around those guys. Tobias Harris is playing a million times better than he used to. That ability to drop a play for Tobias Harris at the end of a game, you know, it's kind of like the Chris Middleton thing. He's kind of like what Chris Middleton is to the Bucks, except for Joel Embiid's actually capable of doing those things that Giannis is not capable of doing. So they can bring it on both ends of the floor. And over the course of a seven-game series, physicality plays a huge role. The game's really slowed down. It's a lot of bully ball. It's a lot of can you, you know, get key rebounds and can you, when the refs are swallowing their whistles, can you be physical enough and dominate that side of the game? And Philly is just going to be monstrously more physical than that Brooklyn team is. So there's a lot of basketball left to play. There's obviously the angle of, of buyout guys and potentially a trade or two that, that Brooklyn can make, although they don't have any uh, uh, trade, uh, they don't have any uh, draft picks at this point. But as of right this second, I would lean slightly towards the Sixers. Let's see what else we got here. All right. So I'm going to get to the one that I saw on Twitter. So there was a a person asked, uh, what did you see in the last four minutes in terms of the execution offensively and defensively from the Lakers? So a lot of this I've already touched on, but I'll touch on a couple of things that I I didn't touch on. Uh, Offensively is really simple. They ran a lot of stuff. Uh, uh, through Dennis Schroeder at the end of the game, attacking Danny Green. So it's a matchup thing. A lot, a lot of times what you'll see at the end of these uh, uh, really slow, uh, bogged down games is attacking specific matchups. And this is something that I love about LeBron James. It's the opposite of the Russell Westbrook effect. So like the Russell Westbrook effect is like Bradley Beal has a good matchup. He's going to work. Russ feels like he's kind of left out. Russ jacks up a couple of stupid shots that, that disrupts the rhythm. LeBron's not like that. LeBron didn't attempt a shot in the final four minutes of that game. And part of the reason was they were getting whatever they wanted elsewhere. And LeBron is not wired in a way to disrupt the flow of the offense for the sake of whatever the hell he's feeling. And so Dennis Schroeder early before, because LeBron temporarily checked out there around the five minute, uh, the five minute mark for his little weird rest that he takes in the middle of the fourth quarter. And uh, Dennis Schroeder just started going to work on Danny Green beating him off the dribble, got to the basket for a floater, got to the basket for a couple layups. Dennis was playing really, really well. And that confidence actually led into him making that huge three on the left wing off of the AD miss uh, uh, later in the game. Uh, but that was part of the offensive execution. And then late in the game, it was a lot of LeBron getting switches onto Joel Embiid and, and driving and kicking, making the right play off of, uh, uh, um, off of his drives, leading to that huge uh, Contavious Caldwell-Pope three in the corner. 
And then I talked about this on the uh, uh, on the thread, but I really, really liked that play that they ran at the end of the game for Anthony Davis to get the what would have been the game winner had Tobias not made his shot. So right before the timeout, LeBron and AD run pick and roll at the top of the key. Ben Simmons is on LeBron. Joel Embiid is on Anthony Davis. When they go to kind of set the screen, you know, Ben Simmons is going under and, uh, and, and it kind of looks like Joel Embiid's going to switch. Nothing's really open unless he wants to take a, a bomb three from like 24 feet away, which he didn't really have much of a rhythm at that point. So the Lakers call timeout. And it's clear that they're going to switch that LeBron AD pick and roll because they really liked the way AD mostly stayed in, or uh, Embiid mostly stayed in front of LeBron on his previous drive. So it was one of those things. They go into the huddle. They're sitting there thinking, okay, they don't want to switch any weaker defender onto LeBron. I'm watching the game with my father-in-law at this point. I look over at him and I'm like, they're going to try to get uh, uh, Danny Green onto LeBron. Because at this point, Tobias Harris was in and Matisse Theibel was in for the defensive end of the ball. So you don't want to attack Tobias. You don't want to attack Matisse. You don't want to attack Joel. You don't want to attack uh, uh, Ben Simmons. So I was like, they're going to find a way to get Dennis Schroeder into the screening action. I figured they'd run a LeBron Dennis Schroeder uh, uh, pick and roll at the top of the key and just try to get a switch and then have LeBron attack Danny Green. That's what I was expecting. Then they come out of the timeout and did what I thought was pretty genius, which was they basically had Anthony Davis stand in the, in the short corner and they had De- uh, Dennis Schroeder come get the inbound. And then Dennis, if you watch, if you watch the replay and I have it on my feed, he sprints down and sets a hard screen on Joel Embiid. A couple things are important there. By setting a really, really hard screen where you move quickly, it makes it so that uh, 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 the defensive player who's guarding uh, Anthony Davis can't give a, a like kind of like drop away from Anthony Davis so he can go under the screen. He's on Anthony Davis. The screen is on him before he has a chance to position his body. He gets a good hard screen on Joel Embiid. Danny Green doesn't want to switch probably because it was directed by Doc Rivers in the huddle before the play, Danny Green hesitates just for a second. It doesn't completely abandon AD, but you can tell he's looking at Schroeder, and he just hesitates for just a second, probably based on that directive. Anthony Davis curls the screen, gets a wide-open layup. LeBron's going to hit uh, hit that every single time. It was a genius play design, in my opinion. And it was a really smart example of how, like, you know, you can close a basketball game by playing smart basketball, it doesn't always have to be Kevin Durant doing 17 crossovers into a pull-up jump shot or Kyrie, Over, or Kyrie Irving doing the same thing or James Harden doing the same thing. The Lakers closed that game scoring every single possession in the final, I think it was like five minutes. They literally scored every time down the floor. I think it was eight consecutive either made field goals or, or uh, trips to the free throw line. And they did it all with very little isolation. There's a whole lot of uh, of uh, driving kick. It was a whole lot of uh, of specific screening actions to get guys open, offensive rebounding, just like they closed the game on both ends of the floor by executing defensively and 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 just making the right play on offense. And they did it, and they made it look easy. And it, 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 there was no crazy LeBron fadeaway or anything along those lines. And it was a great example, you know, of why closing basketball games is so much more complicated then guys like Kyrie Irving or Kevin Durant will tell you that it is. Uh, and I, I did think that that was fun to watch. Uh, last question I'll take, and then we're done. Why is Vogel doing this lineup thing again this season? 
Uh, I honestly don't know. Um, there's some stuff early on, you know, like the Schroeder stuff, it's obvious. The Schroeder stuff has to do with, uh, you know, taking care of his ego because he wants to start. There, there, there's always been some lineup stuff with Montrez where they're just kind of trying things out. The Montrez stuff, you know, everyone always says, like, why are they playing Keith and Trez? Why are they playing Keith and Trez? It's clear that the Keith and Trez stuff isn't working. But to me, that's all part of an attempt to try to figure out how they can make Trez work on this team. And, you know, from the very beginning, all the way back to the Trez signing, I said I didn't like it. I said I didn't like hard capping the team. I said I didn't like uh, um, uh, his fit naturally on the defensive end or offensively. I was never a big fan of the Trez signing. So, but it is what it is. He's on the team now. And, uh, and Frank was trying things with Trez to try to find lineups that work. The stuff that I can't figure out is the Caruso stuff. Like I said, it just doesn't make any sense to me. He's very clearly one of your top three guards. You know, like this isn't like last year where like KCP was struggling sometimes and, you know, Rondo was struggling, struggling from time to time. Like Dennis Schroeder is really good and, and uh, KCP is awesome. So, you know, those two guys need to be in there a lot. But Caruso very much belongs in that conversation. Uh, but he's very clearly in that third spot in the hierarchy of the guards, which means it makes absolutely no sense for him to only be playing, you know, 17.7 minutes per game. To me, that's just completely inexcusable. The exciting part about the guard rotation is there was a lot of question last year about, you know, uh, there was a lot of question last year about whether the Lakers had enough guard talent. And now I think they've got the perfect guard threesome to go with LeBron and AD. Schroeder, KCP, Alex Caruso, Anthony Davis, and LeBron is just going to be an incredible lineup for the Lakers to lean on uh, in crucial moments of playoff series at the end of the season. All right, guys. Well, we have one more. Uh, has Keith regressed? Real quick, guy like uh, guy like Marquise Morris, classic role player. When they go in and out of games, uh, in and out of chunks of the season, shooting the ball poorly, shooting the ball well, I'm not worried about it. When he first came to the Lakers last year, he couldn't make anything. Uh, and then in the playoffs, he was a dead-eye shooter. He had some moments early in the season where he was shooting super well. I'm not worried about it. Marquise is what he is. He's a backup center, backup four-man who can occasionally knock down open shots. He's not great attacking closeouts and he's not great defensively. He's just a, uh, uh, he's a backup four or five man. He's what he is. Like if your if your expectations are for Markeith Morris to bring some massive thing to the table, you need to adjust your expectations. Cause that's just never going to be something uh, that he's going to be able to do and do well. Um, he, I, I would imagine he'll have a few more stretches this season where he shoots really well. And I imagine he'll have a few more stretches this season where his shot seems to leave him. And same thing goes for playoff games. He'll have a game where he makes three or four, and then he'll have a game where he can't make them. It's just kind of part of the process. Um, Anyway, so tomorrow I am doing a pod with Tommy where I'm going to talk about other NBA stuff. Um, But today I really just wanted to dive into the Laker game. You know, not often in a long regular season do you have a chance to really, you know, uh, get something from a regular season game because regular season basketball always has these other factors. But you could tell right away from the beginning that both teams were playing super hard and it was going to be a really competitive game. It had a kind of a playoff feel to it. And, and that's why I thought that game was super interesting. Interesting. It's why I took the time to really dive into the numbers. So I took the time to really watch the film and try to see what I could find that was interesting uh, out of that game. But thank you guys all so much for all of your support. You know, I, uh, um, I can't believe how many listens these things get and how many downloads the podcast gets. Uh, I, I'm so thankful for you guys. And I appreciate you tuning in. Uh, like I said, tomorrow with Tommy and then hopefully two more every week from now on. And then if you haven't checked out my film breakdown of the, of the fourth quarter, you can find it in my Twitter feed. 
All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your day, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.